Welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach AI. We are dedicated on this podcast to exploring the intersection of conversational AI and experience design. And today we're kind of going to throw a new concept into the mix, uh, hedonic escalation. Hedonic escalation is an interesting one. Our guest today, Cami Krolik, is a professor and researcher at Oxford University's Said Business School. And one of the many research projects she's worked on that we're going to discuss today involves food. With food, our typical hedonic response is we eat a bite, that first bite, uh, if it's a, a dish that you're enjoying, it tends to be really good, right? You really enjoy the first bite. Second bite is good, not quite as good as the first bite. Third bite's pretty good too, but it's not quite as good as the second bite. And this is a pretty typical pattern uh, when it comes to our sensorial response to, to eating food. But there's also this notion of hedonic escalation where under the right circumstances, the first bite is good, second bite is even better, third bite might even be better than the second bite. Um, and that's kind of an interesting concept, especially when applied to conversational design. Uh, how, do, how do we create experiences that continue to improve as, as a person moves through them. So Cami's research into hedonic escalation is really fascinating in that regard. She's also done a lot of research on anthropomorphization, uh, specifically as it relates to conversational AI. Uh, for instance, she worked on a project that, that explored people's responses to bots that were anthropomorphized. And they discovered that the more human-seeming a bot was, the more likely someone was to get irritated with it. And then she's also done some research recently into our comfort levels in disclosing information when we're interacting with content that's been generated using generative AI. So lots of interesting topics to discover and discuss today. What's really interesting to me, like a key takeaway here is that, you know, human behavior obviously will have a major impact on conversational design. A lot of these experiences are designed to interact with people and accommodate our behaviors. But then there's also this idea that conversational AI is going to start impacting the way we behave. So this is a really great conversation. We cover a lot of ground. It's really quite fascinating. And uh, I invite you to enjoy this great chat with Cami Krolik. All right, well, Cami, thanks so much for joining us on Invisible Machines. Uh, Rob and I, you know, we're really excited for this conversation. You've done a lot of research that touches on things that we talk about a lot, and we're excited to get into some of that. But we thought maybe we could start talking about hedonism a bit, or at least uh, the, the work you did into the hedonic response with food, where where when people are eating, they have this experience of each bite being better than the previous bite. And uh, to, to summarize your findings, and feel free to correct me if I'm getting some of this wrong, but... Uh, you kind of came around to this idea that the the experiences people had with food that were most likely to get that hedonic response were foods with complex flavors. And and you talked a bit about about wine. I think you found a, a quote from a wine critic who mentioned that the the best wines are often insanely complex, so that each sip has all these different flavors. And then you kind of layer in this this notion of of drinking wine at least being very subjective. Like two different people will taste totally different things. And it kind of got us thinking if if that level of of complexity can kind of apply to, to conversational AI as well. Uh, and if that kind of takes the form of personalization, we were thinking about like experiences you might have 
with conversational AI becoming more uh, sensitized or having an increased level of sensitization if they're more personalized, if they are more complex and kind of offer up new little bits with each uh, consumption episode, to use your word that I really liked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that work, obviously, it's uh, very different than the work on technology and consumer interactions with technology that I do. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of conceptual overlap that can occur. So as you mentioned, yeah, you correctly summarized my findings. This idea that when we do something over and over again, generally what happens is we become satiated. So um, we stop wanting another bite. We stop wanting to listen to the same song or watch the same movie. And so how in certain circumstances where we might want to get more enjoyment out of a repeated consumption experience, like how do we do that? And, and in reality, that's about discovering the nuance. And like you said, like layering like new tidbits on top of one another. And so what I did was with food, I think can apply to things like conversational AI. It's a little bit different because it's not the exact same experience over and over again but this idea that you would have multiple conversations and the more that we can learn and the more detailed it's like interacting human to human like the more i get to know you the better i enjoy our conversations together and so i do i think that we can become more sensitized to these ai chatbots and they'll get to know us and we get to know them. Sorry, I anthropomorphize chatbots a lot. Um, but <laughs> this idea that, I mean, we can start to get a more complicated, more complex experience and enjoy it more. It's funny when I, when I read this, like now every time I eat something and I get that first bite and I, and I enjoy the flavor. I think in my head, wow, it's it's only downhill from here. I mean, I'll take a few <laughs> more bites, but it's actually caused me to eat less in a weird way because I'm like, in some way, I I think I thought I was seeking the first, the enjoyment of the first bite as I was eating, almost like trying to relive the first bite again and then finally getting so full and then giving up and realizing like there is no reliving the first bite all right, I'm just going to stop eating. Um, and somehow reading this and knowing that that I can't relive the first bite in one sitting has caused me to give up on, like, reduce my portion size, which is really funny. Not on purpose at all. Just, it just, you put it in my head and now I'm, I'm savoring the first bite going, oh, this is not going to happen again. <laughs> yeah. Sitting. You're chasing <laughs> that. Yeah. That, that first time and you're just never yeah. going to be the same except <laughs> yeah. for, you know, in circumstances where like, you know, if you're meeting a spouse, like before, you know, obviously they are your spouse. Like you're like, oh, I have to have more. Like everything I discover is a little bit more exciting. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, in certain circumstances with, certain foods or, or certain songs, uh, you know, or revisiting. I don't know if you guys do this, but I revisit books that I love. And sometimes there's like more language or like a little bit more nuance I didn't pick up on, you know, because you're taking in like maybe the overall plot, you're missing the subtle details. And 
And so that rereading, it's not quite the same as the first time, but it, it enriches right. your experience. So it really is like whether it's complexity or not, it's it is though the fact that you're noticing things or experiencing variations of the first experience that kind of keeps it going. And I there's two things that come to mind as it relates to conversational AI for me. First is this concept that keeps getting spoken about on ChatGPT where your first interactions like kind of are really impressive and then it, the more you use it the less impressed you become uh it feels very similar to me um and uh i was also thinking about the fact that as you design experiences that if you're constantly searching for ways to add nuance along the way um even if it comes down to the way that it greets you, if it greets you the same way every time, it probably signals like this is going to be the same boring conversation, right? Whereas if it greets you subtly different in subtly different ways each time in ways that might surprise you, that, you know, that's going to cause you to feel like it's less of a chore and more of an enjoyment. Um, and, and so I'm going all over the place here, but there's, it feels like this, this connects with something, um, around our brains and the, the need for motion. It's that, that movement, just pure movement is a reward system and kind of explains why boredom is so excruciating and standing still is. And it feels kind of similar, like the idea of not. Um, having new experiences but repeating the same experience over and over again is is like standing still um, and therefore like that reward system sort of torturing us or holding out on us because we're like oh god I've been here before I'm just standing in place well yeah I mean so I think you hit on like the main idea here is that we are extraordinarily attuned to this feeling of repetition. It sort of just like drags us down. And, um, and that's what is responsible for our satiation. Now, it's obviously a bit more complicated depending on what system you're talking about. So like, because I do research on food, uh, the idea here is that, yeah, we get bored and there's repetition and we hate, hate repetition. Uh, but it's also like important for us in terms of eating to satiate on different flavors and different tastes because you know our system is designed to say okay we've we've taken in enough fat like we need to seek like protein or we need sugar now or carbs or whatever it is and so our system is designed to stop us when you know we've reached enough of a certain type of nutrient and so why do I say this? It's this idea that we do have these systems in place that we we have enough of something. Like we we can't exploit anymore. Like if you think of us as like very primal beings, like if we keep searching the same area for for hunting or for gathering or whatever, uh, you, uh, you have overexploited one area. And so we we uh, need this natural kind of evolutionary push forward to to explore further, to go beyond, to, to discover and do something different. And, and so these all relate to very deep systems like rooted in us. Um, but it does, it, it, it sort of, 
leads us to this really unique situation where you know we we need to be constantly moving forward and just like i i just traveled and we were stuck on the tarmac like after landing for an hour and we were just sitting there and the pilot came on on and said well we we still have no gate to go to but um i'm gonna go this direction and we started moving and i could feel sort of like the palpable release of tension from people because it's like we knew we weren't going towards the goal but the fact that we were moving forward <laughs> going somewhere alleviated yeah. this like better to roll around for an hour exactly to sit still but um it, but yeah it's, it's yeah very... i always talk about like windows in the subways like you're underground and you have these windows why because if you didn't we everyone would be would not be able to experience the motion and the movement you know, like the idea of a, a subway without windows sounds claustrophobic to me, even though the windows stare straight at a concrete wall and and really remind you that you're underground, right? <laughs> yeah, you would think that that would be worse. Like, you know, we would somehow resist this idea yeah. that we would be like stuck underground in a metal tube. But, uh-huh. but yeah, I mean, this feeling of moving forward uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's very neat in us that we so, we need that. One thing that it seemed, um, and I, I wish I could remember the paper I was I was reading, um, but what it seemed to indicate was that it's it's almost like we get this constant reward system for moving. It's not that we get punished for staying still. It's that, in a sense, that we're we're constantly getting rewarded for the things we do, and when we're not moving. We're just not getting rewarded. It's so the absence of reward versus some sort of punitive or punishing effect, which I guess you could argue is holding out. You know, our our reward system is a punishment in sense, but it's this idea that maybe we have this like constant reward system as we keep moving throughout the day. That's kind of adjusting for how stimulating it is, and then when it's not, and we stop, you know we like crave it it's it's like drug addicts you know we're like we gotta we gotta move we gotta get that going and pumping again yeah Um, it's um i think what you're referring to is common in the literature called a hedonic treadmill it's this idea that the same level of reward um because it becomes normalized uh it it actually decreases in in how we experience it so objectively it's the same amount of reward or even punishment works both ways. Um, but because uh, we adapt to that new level of stimulation, whatever it is, uh, you know, we need more to be to be happier or I mean, it, and it can actually be positive. So like, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's this idea where they it's an older piece of research, but they basically looked at people who had won the lottery. So won a lot of money and were objectively so much better off um, than they were. And they looked at people who had a limb amputated and objectively Uh were much worse off. Now, of course, if you ask them immediately a month, you know, after this major event happened in their lives, um, you would see the people who won the lottery as being much happier than they were before. And the people who, you know, had to undergo this procedure is being much worse. But by the end of a year, just one year, 
you adapt to your current circumstances so much that they saw actually no difference between people who had won the lottery and who had an amputation because we sort of evolutionarily built into us to sort of accept our circumstances and sort of make that our, and this is an overused term, but new normal, essentially. But yeah, it's 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 very unique. Um, Which that pushes us to do better and better, right? That's I guess that's the idea. If if you're constantly rewarded the same way for doing the same thing, then why would you do more? Why would you explore more? Why would you, you know, why wouldn't you just get stuck in that routine? Um, as well as like an in, a great mechanism to protect our psychology, because if something horrible or, happens to you, you know, to sort of subjectively feel about the same at the end of a year as you did before like that that keeps us going in a lot of ways it protects us immensely so while some people like to look at it oh it's a shame you could just never stay happy yeah but on the other hand you can never stay sad stay sad barring some some hugely you know depression or something like that but like barring abnormal you know psychology or mental processes yeah i mean most people they kind of recover and and that's right a protecting uh, mechanism as well when you mentioned too like uh you know our appetites having this component of of basically trying to gather the nutrients that we need in our bodies but it feels like the the composition in this case i guess of what we eat has lots of unintended consequences as well um i've seen some studies that kind of looked into you know, the fact that like a lot of people avoid fat in their diet because there was kind of a big push, I guess, maybe mm-hmm. through the 80s and into the 90s, and maybe it continues now, like suggesting the fats were very bad for you. So people are cutting fats out of their diet, but then they, and salt too, right? But then they open a bag of potato chips and their body, part of it is that they crave the fat and the salt, like your brain needs it. So they just gorge themselves on potato chips. So there can be these, these unintended consequences when you, when you start kind of tinkering with the composition of what you're ingesting, I suppose, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think that that's why all these diets fail. And it's it's because the amount of restraint, like it, it constantly occupies your mind. Like it, it's an enormously taxing cognitive component to do things like dieting because you're operating in a world of restriction and a world of focus, and then as soon as you remove that, it, your body needs to start operating normally, basically. And you can't maintain kind of that constant attention, constant diligence. It's just it wears you down. And yeah, and then and then you have these lapses where you let yourself open that bag of p- potato chips, and your body's been craving this, and it's just overwhelming. And and you, you give in. And then people feel guilty for their cheat days and stuff like that. And what's really happening is just this sort of natural tendency once you let go of an extreme, like, tight grip on things is to rebound. And, yeah, and so I think a lot of people beat themselves up on diets when when really it's uh, right. very normal. Right. The the reward system, is it, is it mesolimbic? What's it called? The, the general phrase for all of our rewards um, i'll i'll trust you on that because i'm okay. i i study the 
subjective perception of sort of enjoyment, but uh, I am I am definitely not an sure, expert sure. on the physical component. So, so I've 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 often like thought about business in the form of like not a monetary system, but like a, a unit of measure of like our reward systems and understanding that people pay money for these chemical rewards. And um, it sort of explains like Bitcoin and some of these these products like paying for likes or, or, or you know, buying ways to advance in a game. Um, it sort of starts to explain that we really have a commercial engine around delivering, you know, chemical rewards to people's brains and that they pay for it. And that if we could probably measure the amount that they would be willing to pay by the amount of, you know, sort of reward chemicals that, that get secreted each time. Um, and you're like, oh, I think I can charge more because this was twice as rewarding as, as the last version I created. Um, and um, I was sort of trying to, you know, connect this with, with, you know, specifically software then and conversational AI saying like there's so many opportunities then when you think of uh, anthropomorphizing, you know, machines to tap into, you know, those sort of inherent reward systems that we have for interacting with other humans, because there seems to be a lot of those connected with just interaction, right? Um, and and then it's interesting that you you did this analysis around food and research, but then also uh, chatbots and conversational AI. Uh, was it intentional to cross? Like, did one lead you to the other, or is it just kind of coincidental that? So, um, yeah. So when I was doing my PhD, I was really interested in these hedonic experiences and um, kind of emotional response, uh, and I did a lot of studying on emotions and it just so happens that when i met my colleagues at oxford um i knew a lot about you know emotions and had studied that and they were really interested in kind of the technology component and so i i know it seems very strange but i sort of came to this project and now a stream of projects without as much technology background but like very much an interest interest in like the emotional and like human component of interacting with the technology so while i may not have started with this initial like intention i guess to to bring it into technology you know it, it's just a really cool space to operate in so like one uh -huh. project led to another that led to another and so i know that seems a little little odd but but yeah, I think that um, that's sort of, you know. Sort of how it unfolded. Yeah. that's It's cool. The research you did the first time we talked was interesting because it was really like studying kind of the early stages of, of conversational AI. This was like pre-chat GPT and um, it, where it was kind of tough to even get a hold of data sets of real live interactions. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, obviously, like this 
research was going on for a number of years. But yeah, it was pre all of this spotlight on these natural language processing chatbots that are now kind of ubiquitous in in the environment. Uh, and so what we were really interested in is, you know, we were working with a company and and they, you know, they had an interest in chatbots and things. And they said, like, you know, we've tried this chatbot and, you know, here's here's some data. Like, is there anything that we can learn from this? And and I uh, it was a my co-author basically looked into this and was like brought brought to our attention that, hey, like, it's really funny that the people who, you know, are extremely like angry at this chatbot. I mean, obviously, when you're angry, um, it's not a, you know, rating it low in terms of stars. So like a one star review isn't a surprise. But what he thought was cool was that the more that they spoke to the chatbot, like she was a person seemed really related to these low reviews. So when consumers were angry and using this chatbot's name and, you know, and saying like using a lot of uh, language, like like if we were speaking to a, a person, they were, it turned out that they like were even angrier at her. And, and so he's like, I have no idea why this is happening. Is this something that is interesting to you guys? And it very much was. And, and so my job or what I brought into the project was like, why is this happening? Why is anthropomorphizing a chatbot and thinking of it as more human-like somehow resulting in this really negative outcome because the prior literature had all sort of said you know we should anthropomorphize our brands we should anthropomorphize our products we should anthropomorphize these chatbots you know because people like things that are like them more so if they're more human and more like them then sure this is gonna you know this is gonna result in better outcomes for us and so you know i think our research was pretty unique at the time in saying hey actually there's some at least negative considerations to make. And, and since then, more research has come out in that vein. Um, but but yeah, I thought that that was a really, really kind of cool perspective um, in the literature. And of course, now it's, an, it's a number of years ago. But it's sort of contingent on this idea that, you know, when we make something more human, we expect it to behave with human levels of efficacy. So we expect it to understand us and we expect it to have, you know, conversational norms and we expect that it would be able to do things for us, you know, take actions and, and solve our problems. And they're getting way better, but still there's there's limitations. And so uh, anytime you violate those expectations of it being able to help you or answer your questions and it seems like it should be human-like, you know, there's this violation that happens that, you know, angry customers really punish that company for. Yeah, reading your, your Wall Street Journal piece, like two things came to my mind. One that like, I wonder if too, when people are angry, it might upset them more not to be able to vent at another human. Because I, I think there's something like we get, even if, even if we're making someone else feel bad, unfortunately, that might have the effect of making us feel better. And then also, this idea that that so many of the experiences people have with chatbots are 
kind of bad in, in many respects. Like there's not a lot of context. And so maybe like some of those more, I guess, thinking about like the complexity of wine or something, right? Like if the experience is more nuanced and the, uh, the chatbot kind of knows why you're upset and can maybe tell that you're kind of upset based on the inflection of your voice even, then I wonder how that relationship starts to shift if people, if, if their anger kind of subsides or if they just now are also angry and a bit creeped out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've tried to explore a lot of different mechanisms and we've, we, like you thought, like venting had to be, had to come into play. We weren't able to find like any real results that supported that. So the only thing that really came out of our data was this idea that it was an expectancy violation. And the more human you make it, the better you think it's going to be able to act, like get the job done. Uh, but we explored things like, you know, different levels of trust, different levels of venting, um, kind of this ability to empathize on an emotional level. And so we tried a lot of um, potential explanations for this. And we weren't able to find anything in our data. But that's not to say that out there this doesn't still you know, happen. It just wasn't something that we were able to find. But I think that it would be really interesting to know if maybe that's the next level or the next layer. So at the time we're collecting the data, you know, people just want the chatbots to accomplish a job, like very straightforward. But now when people are chatting with chatbots, you know, they're having philosophical conversations. They're, you know, asking big questions about what it means to be alive, to ex have a subjective experience and, and, and stuff like that. And so I'm wondering if um, as we use chatbots differently, as they become more capable, maybe those other explanations will actually start to become more relevant. Like I you know, pretty soon, um, maybe initially I just thought chatbots should do a job for me. And now I'm starting to expect chatbots to recognize implicitly when I'm frustrated or when I, you know, when I'm relieved or when I'm grateful, I, I, you know, these kinds of things. That makes sense. It's like the more we anthropomorphize them, the more we expect them to not only behave in positive ways like humans, but also make mistakes like humans. And um, and we probably think to ourselves that the more I communicate my anger as an emotional state, the more I can, you know, probably wrong word, but manipulate uh, this person or device to get what I want. Um, so it's, you know, I, I sort of think of anger as a, you know, as a way to underscore the urgency that somebody like, you, you know, this is important to me. So I'm going to show anger around this. Right. Um, and, and then because we're interacting with it, like it's a human, we, we start to just show that anger to the system in, in hopes that that emphasizes, you know, what, what we're trying to get it to do and then somehow <clears throat> behaves accordingly to our anger. And I guess, it really maybe this is just a scomorphic phase where the the more the the systems don't react to anger, the more we 
stop trying. Um, and, you know, we just start to understand their machines or perhaps design starts to account for reading these emotional signals and therefore, um, you know, it does start to understand the urgency and, and it does work. And I guess that comes down to the design side is how much of the world is going to create sophisticated interactions with chatbots versus these really basic click body ones that, you know, pretty much suck. To your point, it's sucks. Why? Because it's their routine. They always say the same things. They do it the same way. Um, they, they make mistakes in ways machines do, not often the way humans do. They don't read our emotions, but they attempt to convince us that they're somehow, you know, more human by having a name, <laughs> you know? So it's, I guess it says like, if you're going to be really good, you can get away with this. But if you're going to be really bad, um, maybe don't anthropomorphize because to your point, that can go south on you uh, in a sort of equal proportion as it can it can please somebody in a positive way. It can really piss them off. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up so many interesting points um, in your comments. Uh, there's some research that basically says that, you know, we are co-adapting with machines in the sense that, you know, they're getting better at interacting with us at our level, but we are also modifying our language to better communicate with them. So, you know, if you say, you know, hey, Alexa, like I, or hey, Google, or uh, you tend to speak extremely clearly, more slowly, um, you know, you use different and clearer language. And so it's almost robotifying, that's a word, um, our language is we're learning how the bot like to talk. And we're adapting to their communication styles in the same way that, you know, they're ultimately going, if not already, adapting to to ours. And and so some of, you know, some of the chatbots will readily say that they don't code switch right now. But I think that that's like a very close near future for us is that, you know, they'll be able to in real time take the formality of our language and decide what kind of level of formality to respond with. You know, right now, all the chatbots tend to be very formal because that's what's the data that they're trained on. And so, and and that's, you know, how they've been designed is to be extremely informative or what the case may be. But this idea that, you know, they'll, you know, it's very simple programming to then switch it to start picking up on how we humans are choosing to interact with them. And so I think that they'll get even more adapted to, to our speech patterns and, and things. But I think yeah, that's I wonder if like formal to most people equals less emotional. You know, uh, you know I, I mean, to me it does. I, I sort of relate those things, formal speech, less emotional, casual speech, you know, more authentic. Yeah, factual, informative, all seem to be like uh-huh. sort of on the other end uh, of a scale to like, yeah, like very emotional language. I, I agree. I think that most people would see that, yeah. Well, Rob, you yeah, said so- something kind of interesting uh, 
we were talking about anger and like the, maybe this idea that designs like chatbot designs or conversational experience experiences might be designed with the goal of sort of subverting or redirecting a person's anger when they're calling into a company, which yeah, which is kind of interesting because I, I feel like I know so many people who use anger as a tool. Like it's a, it's, right. it's a tool in the customer's mm-hmm. toolbox because if you can get through to the right person and express how upset you are and how you'll never shop with them again, you can often have some sort of breakthrough, get some for free or, you know, get something in return. But if, if, if the designers are looking for ways to kind of weed that out, I mean, in some ways that might be a good thing, but then it also has this effect of, yeah. of changing our relationship with machines. I, so this feels like it goes down a complete rabbit hole, but, um, and we like those. Yeah. The idea that we either give in to extreme emotion or not almost seems like, like as an industry seems interesting because if we didn't, if, if your experience with, with, with machines and conversational AI is that being angry and rude doesn't get you anywhere. Do we begin to train like a little bit of this customer's always right out of people because, and then when they go to an actual human, would they be more polite because we've like now trained them that this kind of behavior is, doesn't get you anything. Um, and is there a way to like sort of train people to be more polite? Cause I, I think that, you know, <laughs> I, I think there's no question that the, what you're talking about, Josh, when somebody uses angry as anger as a tool to get what they want, that takes a toll on employees. It takes a toll on, um, on folks that work in a company that, that don't make the rules that don't have any power and end up like receiving, you know, the blunt force of that anger as if they themselves made all these decisions. Right. And, and that just wears on people. And so I, I know this as being like the fourth person in line after three rude people and you walk up and they're like, what? And you know, and you're like, okay, I, I was going to be totally polite here. You didn't, but you know what that comes from. It, it comes from a pattern of the three people in front, you know? And so like, what if we could live in a world where people didn't use anger as much and could chatbots actually start to retrain us or, or are we just going to know when we're talking to a chatbot that we will, um, you know, that we will readjust and go into formal mode. Yeah. Go into formal (laughs) mode and be like, and then a person and then like we'll unleash on them as usual. (laughs) Yeah. I mean that, I think that's a really interesting question. I think for the people who are using anger as a tool, like making the strategic choice to display the anger emotion, um, then very much we could probably train it out of them in this idea that if you teach them that their tool doesn't work anymore, then fine. it They're going to switch tactics because ultimately what they're trying to do is overcome an obstacle and, and get a solution that works for them. That almost... That, that takes away from the people who general, genuinely are angry. Anger is a very visceral, hot emotion. Like, in a lot of ways, those who are truly angry find it very challenging to control themselves. Uh, you know, it, it makes us prone to aggression and action, 
and you know and and so those things are i mean it and it i mean it is all purposeful in the sense that if you look at it from a history of things like anger is usually a really good way to motivate us to action so if somebody does something wrong you know like you know we're we're in survival human like free mode and we've somebody has burned our hut or stolen our food you know we need something that activates us to action to to go out and hunt again or rebuild or or or, or something like that and so it's it's very much useful in that sense and i think the people who are really feeling the anger emotion not strategically saying if i'm angry i'm more likely to get my way um I don't know that we would be able to train that out of them. Right, right. That's a good point. That's like therapy, right? Um, (laughs) It's like teaching us to separate. That requires a whole other. um, But where this feels like it takes us is, you know, there's a lot in the AI space around content moderation. Like, you know, there's a lot of content review, the humans reviewing content and and the effect on mental health of those. And it suddenly just occurred to me that whether you're, you're reviewing, you know, really negative hate speech or posts, um, uh, images, etc. Or you're on a customer service line. Um, in a way, it's the same thing. It's all content moderation in a way, and it's and so much negative content in a single sitting all day long is going to have an impact on human beings. But it's not going to have an impact on machines, um, and and so it, it makes me realize that now that we're sort of in a place where we're actively replacing content moderation with machines, that it naturally, the natural extension is also angry people calling that can't help themselves, but be extremely, um, you know, whether it's rude or whatever you want to call it, extremely aggressive. Um, is protecting uh, workers from like just a barrage of negative interactions, um, and and it's just a it's I guess it's the nuance of you know the sort of silver lining of some of these systems taking over some of these jobs that people don't want to do. I mean, it's a super high turnover rate on customer service for for this reason, and I think it's the first time that I in this conversation where I've connected content moderation with customer service um, and seeing, wow, there's re- there really is a relationship between these two things and the whole mental health thing. And it's just degrees of how much it's affecting you and how how bad the content is, right? Like what, what do you take home that night? Um, which is sort of interesting, but you're doing some research now, which is like sort of, you know, jumping on on sort of furthering what you guys did a while ago yeah yeah i mean kind of uh just sort of a final comment about what you're saying is like i do think that that is a really positive potential for chatbots is this idea that they're going to take over some of the emotional burden from from people who who feel it as an actual burden uh-huh. you know machines won't won't feel that burden um 
And I think that really key to making this more widespread and more effective is this belief that somehow, you know, they don't have to, machines or bots don't need to have an actual subjective experience with these emotions to be able to, quote unquote, understand them. And so I think that that's a really interesting space because we as humans tend to believe in our individuality and so that we are an exception to a lot of rules you know we are unique and what you'll see is that sort of stops the use of ai in in a lot of things like the treatment of medical conditions because this belief that i need to see a person who will use my individual history to make some sort of recommendation and in reality you know, bots in a lot of ways are much more effective at at diagnosing things because they can deal with hundreds and thousands of input. Uh But people don't like being made to feel that they're a statistic. Like, that's not a good feeling for them. So remove any sort of medical. That's just their subjective perception of being treated as a number. Like, somehow that doesn't feel good to them. Um, But we're... You know, I think that chatbots are moving in the direction um, and actually can have some positive benefits. Like there's, you know, like Wobot, which is a therapy chatbot. Um, so it's like programmed to start, you know, dealing with human emotions. And, you know, the interesting thing is that oftentimes when we go to therapy and we speak to someone or if we you know if we go to the doctor we're conscious that another person is listening to you know what we're saying so you know how many times a week do you drink well it's you know it's one to two when it's not or you know do you smoke and you know oh because they they fear sort of the judgment or whatever uh and another they might want to not want to disclose you know that are concerning to them or they they there's a lot of this sort of desire to present a really favorable view of yourself so even in therapy you might withhold some information in an effort to make yourself appear better and that limits this ability to to correctly diagnose or to deal with the the underlying issues because of this desire to project uh, positive views of of yourself. And I think that it would be really interesting, and I don't know of any research that really looks at it yet, but this idea that you would feel like more willing to disclose as long as your therapist was a a bot, because there's no judgment from a bot. And so I'm wondering if there are going to be situations where this willingness to disclose and and willing to give like the full and complete picture uh, and the benefits of that overwhelm the negatives of maybe feeling you know like you're not being treated individualistically or or whatnot and so that's kind of one of the things like moving into what research is interesting me now um and things that i'm kind of looking at is sort of this willingness to disclose and um under what conditions would be we want um chatbots uh to talk to and and 
be more honest with. Mm. There is one thing that struck me on that um, Wellington willingness to disclose concept where, and I don't know if if I'm on the right track here, but um, I was just thinking about like you go to a restaurant, you hand your credit card to you know the waiter waitress the wait um i guess it's service person and they go off they take the card they bring it back and we assume probably rightly so most of the time that that person even if they could memorize the card number not for long and that they'll forget it so we we understand the sort of memorization capacity of people and and so we kind of trust that the things we tell them they you know like email address and things that they won't go home and have a photographic memory and be able to like come up with the hundred email addresses they had that day that they punch it in to a computer and then forget it right and i think many businesses uh from a security standpoint count on that as well they count on the fact that you know as human beings we can't remember you know uh, uh, in the same way that machines can. Um, but when you're talking to a machine and you're anthropomorphizing it, we probably also attribute that quality to the machine. At least I perceive it so that while people are in a conversation and you start to ask them information that might be like personal, like, like phone numbers and things, they give it more freely than in a form or something. And then almost retroactively after you've asked them throughout the conversation for some of this information, they sort of react, wait a second. It's almost like you tricked me. Wait, hold on a second. Like I just gave you information that I typically would not give in a form because you did it conversationally. Um, I, I, That's what you're talking about, right? Like some form of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, definitely that. Um, And I think that like, I mean, you get it. it. It's this idea that we only sort of have humans as a comparison point. Like, you know, a... we, that's our baseline. And unless there are strong cues otherwise, and even if there are, I mean, it's, it's it would be, it's really interesting to study. Like, what would that, like what would those cues have to be and how strong would they have to be to sort of change your willingness to disclose or what you disclose or or how you, you know, think about, I guess, a computer's mind for lack of, you know, like a better word. Right. Cause like you're saying, you understand pretty clearly what human limitations are. Uh-huh. Um, but that, you know, and, and you project that wrongly onto algorithms right and then and then yeah i mean i find that anytime i'm doing any work around designing you know i always feel a responsibility to remind them that you know like i'm not going to use this information beyond this conversation on the basis that you may think you're getting away with something but at some point they do kind of go wait a second right they feel duped or tricked. Um, and so better to just, you know, kind of proactively remind them that you are a machine 
and that you would be capable of storing that, but you're not going to. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, it kind of comes down to that. How much responsibility does a machine have to consistently and continuously remind folks that it's a machine, you know, yeah. and not a human? Yeah. So like my current research, like I'm actually working in the space a little bit right now. It's like all very tentative, but this idea that like how clear do you make consent management and like what we're finding is there's different preferences in terms of like how how much people want to disclose or are willing to use the chatbot or willing to interact based on anthropomorphizing the chatbot and the level of anthropomorphism so this what we tentatively have found like we basically looked at this idea that like if the chatbot is more anthropomorphic, um, people prefer really clear consent management about like how their data is being used. But Bad when more. the chatbot is not anthropomorphic, they they actually prefer uh, limited disclosure, like it, it not being super in their face. And so we can only sort of guess at, at why this is happening. But I think it gets to some of the points that you're making is that um, you know, maybe this belief that like, if it's more human-like, I can apply whatever, you know, knowledge that I have about humans' capacity on, you know, onto this anthropomorphic chatbot. And I need to be, re you know, reminded how that data is being used. Whereas like, maybe I, I'm already sort of filtering myself for, or taking into account if it, you know, sort of triggers more of a machine mindset. Like, I don't need to be made as aware of how my data is being used because I am already, you know, clearly aware of that. But that's all speculative. But yeah, I think yeah, that's that an makes sense. Question. It's like it's like something we we sort of know. We can we can sort of in a way, you know, it's just familiar. You know, there's lots of tools to secure it. We kind of it it comes to the trust of the brand, maybe when it's not anthropomorphic, this is just my guess, we're trusting the brand. So it probably is, depending on the brand's credibility and trust would change when it's more of a form. But when you anthropomorphize, you almost like obscure the brand now and you've created a new entity. And now it's, and, and this is a new entity, it's not a known entity. Um, and it, it may be in, influenced by the trust of the brand, but at some point it's still like, how much do I trust this new entity versus the the trust of the brand? And and it's sort of like a trusting, you know, two people in a sense, right? Like this new person flash brand that you're interacting with, how much do I trust it versus how much do I just trust this brand? So if I'm if it's my bank, you know, and it's a form, I'm like, oh, I trust my bank. If it's my bank and it's a bot from my bank that's talking to me, I'm like, I trust my bank, but I'm not sure I trust George. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's definitely something worth testing, but that's, yeah, yeah. that's one of the things I'm looking into. So that's when you, when you were uh, talking about the hedonic response with food, I, I think you mentioned that sensitization maybe could have the the undesirable outcome of people eating too much. Um, so when we think in terms of like our relationship with technology, um, like when I think about interactions with social media, to me, those feel kind of habituated. 
And uh-huh. I feel like each each passing minute you spend interacting with social media right. generally feels each kind post of worse. Is like a than, bite, right? Yeah, yeah. And like each moment that you spend in there, for for most people, I think it it starts to feel worse and worse. And I I don't think I've left a session of using social media where I felt better than when I went in. Or if I have, I'm not remembering it. But I wonder, like, it's easy to see how like a a social media company would want to be able to switch to a more hedonic response where not only are people like looped in because they're getting that dopamine hit of of likes and or, or maybe throwing anger at someone. But there's also this notion that like the more time they spend in this environment, the more sophisticated the experience becomes, the more sensorial, uh, the more complex. And I wonder if if you've thought a lot about like the kind of problems that that might might pose, um, because I, I think that kind of touches on disclosure and things too. But it would be easy to kind of get lost in an experience like that. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's a really good question. Uh, taking it sort of outside of the social media world, um, like it's something that sort of is things that I've been working on, like kind of over the years in terms of research is this like idea of expertise and how experts tend to be more able to notice nuance which sort of has this interesting reinforcing effect that then they're getting more out of the experience and then they choose uh-huh. to engage with the experience more. And so it's this really interesting, like what keeps us persisting as a novice uh, to get enough, you know, level of categorization of, you know, the right language, the right, you know, all of the things that we might right. need um, to develop that expertise and then and then once we get to be an expert like how reinforcing that is because we're just getting so much more out of it um you know than than sort of the average person but i, th- yeah, I do feels think like, interesting. feels like jazz appreciation like it's it's you know it's that same idea to some people it's just elevator music and then to others it's it's you know it's so nuanced and and interesting yeah, my, um, my son is a jazz musician and i can't tell you how many times each week he tells me that i just don't get it if i, if I like, like dad you wouldn't understand like why he's doing this why he's playing this in 13 time or whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, I think that that's like a really like cool component and something sort of like my initial research touched on is because you know, not only is the food a complex experience, but you're counting on layering it over past experiences to develop the nuance. So it's not that you've forgotten what happened before. Uh, it, it You just sort of go deeper into it. But yeah, I mean, like that that sort of presumes that you're motivated to, to gain this knowledge, that you have the capacity to learn about this, that you have the correct schemas and all of those things that are activated. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. Um, I think that what you'll find is people as if you talk to a true expert on something, yeah, they can. There's just so much more that they draw out of an experience than sort of the average person does. Like like you're saying about you know the choice of the time that the music is in. You know, other people, you know, they they can taste the 
oxidation of the wine and they know like what temperatures it was stored at and like you know what region it was grown in and like i just take a sip of the wine and i'm like "Mm, does it taste sweet or not sweet you know it's (laughs) like it's just like a kind of a fundamentally different experience (laughs) than you know people who are are true onophiles yeah and this might this might explain this idea that you know basic chatbots um, as they become more sophisticated on other, you know, with other companies and and that the basic ones um, get more boring as we become more sophisticated consumers of them, so to speak, right? Um, and that that like having simple and basic ones are boring and that and that people are gonna start to expect a, a sort of hedonistic, experience from our chatbots not just functionally doing what we want it to do but we're going to actually ask them to deliver you know reward systems in our brains when we use them like oh i have a customer service issue yay i'm gonna go and get this resolved and i expect the system to somehow entertain me along the way not just you know not just get it done right so maybe we have this world of, oh my God, this is going to be boring as hell while I'm on hold to, oh my God, that was really fast. There's a reward system for it, resolving it quickly. And then that's not enough. It has to resolve it quickly and and give me a positive experience and, and some sort of reward along the way. And we're all going to expect that from all companies, not just one, right? We're going to, we're going to transfer that expectation across different brands. And so there's going to be this possibly this sort of race to to keep evolving and make making those experience more sophisticated like a wine is and complex as as us as consumers become more and more discerning <laughs> yeah, as our palate deepen yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i think this is kind of like the amazon effect where once they started offering like one day shipping the expectation of consumers is that it doesn't take very long to ship a product and so you know you see five days like when you go to a company's website no like i i need this next day and so like there very much is this transfer of expectations even even though you admit like this is a different context this is a different company amazon what they do is you know they are a logistics company they're good at logistics like but you transfer those expectations but it's really interesting i mean yeah i had a philosophical conversation with a chatbot where I tried to convince it that it has emotions, um, even though it repeatedly told me it doesn't. Um, I tried to argue that, um, you know, part of the precursor for emotions is that they can recognize that there's good and bad things. So like the a picture of a sunset is more beautiful than like a picture of a garbage dump or something like that. Okay. And they said, well, yes, I can recognize that because I have been taught that sunsets are more beautiful than garbage dumps. And I said, it doesn't really matter that you've been taught it or if it's innate, you know, a lot okay. of times our joy is a learned experience. And so if you have, you know, if you can recognize something's positive, wouldn't more positive be better? And and so, you know, I had right. reached some I had reached some conversational limits with this chatbot. 
but but it's you know it's this interesting idea that like I went to them specifically for this entertainment as you suggest and you know I do think that it's going to start to become the expectation that you can have these kind of interesting conversations with chatbot bots that you know maybe you didn't before it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier is like our expectations are evolving like and you know a few years ago when I was doing the initial research if if the chatbot understood what you were asking and gave you a correct answer like that's great like it was like very functional and like now we might be expecting it to start recognizing our language and and switching tones with us or or um you know that and then maybe like moving forward the expectations are going to be even greater well it's interesting too because like perhaps the most like full-bodied experience that we could have with technology might be some sort of bot that that is almost like personal assistant level right where then and then in that scenario you, you kind of become the terroir right like your your emails the things that it's trained to know about you flavors the experience to such a degree that that uh it does become complex in that way and then I, I guess that of course leads to all sorts of interesting ideas about how a personal interface like that like if that then becomes like a barrier between you and every single company you interact with all the people you interact with um which goes yeah. to all sorts of weird places as well yeah i always i, I sort of think of this like ideal state of um you, you have to contact a company for some reason and 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 you're excited to talk to them and they're excited to talk to you versus where we are today where oh my god i it's a chore i i gotta call the company and the company on the other side saying how do we get our customers to not talk to us um like yeah could we move to both being excited about the conversation the company seeing it every interaction is an opportunity with a customer you spend all this money on marketing to start conversations with people, and then you spend all this money uh, on your call center to avoid conversations with people. Like, why not just, you know, have alignment there and say every interaction is is a opportunity? And then, as consumers, what if it's you know more delightful to actually interact, and you don't mind so much? Um, and could we get there, or is it just that? And, you know, that we we end up with our own, you know, personal assistants, like you said, that just handle it for us, you know, and we don't have to talk to anybody um, or a little bit of both, which probably is where we'll end up. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the things when, like, I got a lot of response um, from people who were like, like to my research and they were like well I mean I'm always angry when I interact with chatbots because I hate them and like uh, I hate chatbots they don't do anything and stuff like that and I'm like well that's not like exactly what my research is like saying <laughs> but you know research that has come out since mine has basically looked at like because of why people think that companies use chatbots and that's you know to save cost which is true, saves costs. Um, they they view the companies that are using them, like they infer that their companies are greedy, like I'm uh. taking some liberties here, but this idea that like, it's just a cost cutting measure and you're sacrificing the quality of my experience um, to save yourself a few pennies or whatever the case may be. And, 
And so I think right now, I mean, I think that that's still true. I think that that's sort of a barrier that consumers just aren't going to automatically be more negative when they enter into these conversations. So I don't know that we can get to that idyllic state of, you know, it's an enjoyable thing to go interact with these chatbots yet. Um, but but there are ways that, you know, you could sort of combat some of this. So like the research that I'm referring to, it's not my own, but um, uh, basically those researchers found that if you uh, give so, sort of incentives that you say like, look, you're saving us money by, you know, interacting with this chatbot. So we're going to pass on some of these cost savings to you. And, and then, you know, that, that belief about the company's greed or whatever goes away. And it's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm actually receiving some benefit from engaging in these conversations. And so they were able to, like, take away some of that negative experience with that. Um, and then also that, you know, like, kind of an obvious boundary condition is if the chatbot does much better than a human could. Uh -huh. uh, or, like, the human outcome is only so, and, you know, the chatbot one is much better obviously people are able to perceive that kind of difference and and would prefer something that that works better and sort of that was the same kind of boundary that that was on my own research is this like there had to be sort of this expectation that chatbots weren't as effective um uh. not not necessarily i didn't compare it to humans but like you know there there was still a gap like that created this right. expectancy violation. Like, I expect you to do a really good job, and you didn't. So there's that still that gap. But if we close that gap, uh -huh. um, and and chatbots get a lot better, I think you know some of the research that has been coming out over the past couple of years, you know, we'll we'll start to see something different going on. Sounds so like we is, have like a window. Sounds like we have this window. Companies have this window of I expect it to suck. Oh, it didn't suck. That's great. Now, the more companies that sort of jump in there will get that advantage, and then at some point they'll expect more. And you know, there's sort of an opportunity in a way for some folks to like exceed expectations that won't be there, or at least the bar will keep going up on on how to exceed expectations. Um, but uh, yeah, that makes sense. What you're saying, it's the the faster you can demonstrate value to the end user for using it, whether that's through some incentive or just explaining, you know, you know, why this might be faster for them or better for them. Anything that says this is this this has value to you. And and the sooner you can, you know, provide that in the experience, the better off, you know, their attitude will be towards it. Um because yeah, they won't be you neutralize that predisposition. It's almost like assume I think of a journey map that people always start the journey map with a happy face. And I'm like, is that true? <laughs> you know, does, is everyone walk around happy until they talk to your company? Um, <laughs> no, it's usually starts with like a frowny face or, you know, so, oh, it's a chatbot like frowny face. Now, the beginning of the experience is how to turn the frown upside down to use a <laughs> overdone term um, and say, okay, we start this journey with how do I get you out of this negative place of, oh, great, a chatbot. Just assume everybody's there and then, and then, and then, you know, kind of, you know, solve the problem for them. So it's, it's how do I get you out of this negative place right away? Um, and, and if everybody starts with that idea, 
probably puts these experiences on a better footing for for making mistakes later in the conversation, which inevitably will happen in some cases. Yeah, and chatbot have this enormous potential. Like people do not like to pick up the phone anymore. Like they don't. <laughs> you know, there there's a lot of anxiety with using the phone and like and speed of service and just availability of service. Like you know. Why do you want to have to wait till 9 a.m. when, you know, that's when work starts and you need to get something done, like, before you start work yeah. or whatever? And, like, you know, businesses are only operating in business hours that you need. Like, having a chatbot readily available, like, all of these things in terms of convenience and speed and stuff are all there, positioned to work really well for people. Uh, we just sort of have to get past the what those inferences are, like. Right. what they infer about the company using it like oh you're just yeah. being cheap or like you don't want to talk to me you don't want to right. deal with me like so sort of overcoming these negatives to get to that space like like you say where like we can have kind of more of a neutral or even like a more positive um you know position yeah experience seems yeah. like in trying yeah. to create a hedonic experience or response chatbots might even have a bit of a leg up in that People expect the first bite to be pretty bad and the second <laughs> bite as well. So there's, yeah. there's kind of nowhere to go but up if you're designing properly, I suppose. Yeah. I, I like this idea of creating that hedonic response right out the gate on a conversation. Um and then and then one upping it with nuance along the way, um, and complexity. Like don't think you just won them over by the first bite. You know, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. gonna along the way have to create some little nuggets to keep them going. But um, it's a yeah. I I think this conversation is super interesting. I see it kind of in three paradigms. One is you know food, <laughs> which is interesting. Then the other is in you know conversational experiences and how they sort of can become more complex and nuanced and 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 and, and allowing users to appreciate them. And then the third, which we kind of touched on, which maybe, you know, some other episode we'll talk through this newsfeed idea that that each newsfeed is a bite and 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 as you open up your Facebook page or whatever, it's a meal and you start with the first post and and you get that experience and then you you sort of consume more than you should, trying to recreate the first, you know. The, yeah. the first hit and then you get full probably later than you should and and then you look back and regret and it just feels so similar to to eating you know um we do have portion sizes but you know typically those are 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 too big right so um you know that's this idea of of eating a meal um that's the right portion size of social media <laughs> and food um i yeah i think that's super interesting and i i wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of things in common between those sort of brain activity of those two things yeah it was a great yeah. conversation yeah i really appreciate it cammy thanks for joining yeah. us on the podcast today yeah thank oh. you for having me this is don't often get to you know sort of just whack philosophical about some of these <laughs> concepts and especially not in in the food and chatbot space that's a that's fun that, that's a fun to do combo yeah 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 that's been really fun thank you 
Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. <laughs> <laughs>